coming to the ground the next next day because you'd drive through all the you know the various picnickers around the place in the uh, in the back car park and they were giving it to us and it was just the best preparation and they say hey come on just keep it coming keep it coming very yeah you know, there was absolutely uh, rivers of arrogance coming through that uh, the car park. Rivers of arrogance indeed. Welcome to a Green and Gold Rugby podcast bonus special. I'm Rugby Reg, and that was the one and only Simon Portovan talking about the Australian team's arrival at Tuckerton prior to the Rugby World Cup Grand Final against the Poms in 1991. Can you believe that was 25 years ago this year? And that's what this special podcast is about. A retrospective look back at the two Wallaby versus England tests that year in celebration of the upcoming test series here in Oz. I use our chats to Wallaby winger Rob Edgerton, fly half Michael Liner, scrum half and captain Nick Farr-Jones, and of course the one and only Simon Portovan, as we look back at not only the Rugby World Cup final, but also the test against the English earlier that year in Sydney, one of the finest Wallaby performances of that generation. So let's get straight into it. I start by asking Noddy Liner about the evolution of this side, which included the introduction of some test match rookies in Johnny Eels, Tim Horan and Jason Little. In 1991, we had a very settled side, which started to develop in, in you know, a year or so before that. And I guess it culminates, as there are a lot of World Cup winning teams, with um, some senior people, leaders, etc., in key positions, with a lot of experience, which some of the names you've read there are, are, are very um, very key to that sort of, and um, come under that banner. Um, but then bracket that with some uh, new, exciting, young talent, and you know, Scott, you mentioned Horn and Little, um, those eels, those sort of people who went on to become great sort of rugby players um, were great then as well. But their young, their enthusiasm and their, their ability, etc., um, around the framework of experience and more mature people around them. I'm not saying they're immature, but more in a rugby sense, really. Uh, with a good blend within the team. Now, you add to that, it's all very well having those sort of guys in a team, but if they're into to not have had many injuries both prior to and during the tournament. So that brings us to 1991, where we blooded fullback Marty Roebuck in the first test against Wales at Ballymore, alongside Rob Edgerton on the wing, and a young rangy lock by the name of John Eels. We thrashed the Welsh that day, 63-3, with both Edjo and Roebuck scoring tries and debut, and the Welsh fighting amongst themselves at the aftermatch function. A week later, we'd take on the Poms at Sydney, with the English having won the Six Nations earlier that year, taking out the Grand Slam in the process. We made just the one change to our starting team from Wales, with the experienced Simon Poitervin coming back into the side for Jeff Miller, playing his first test since he had originally retired back in 1987. The Wallabies put in one of their most dominant games of rugby in some time in defeating the English 40-15 in a match where the Wallaby pack were dominant and the back row moves were prominent. I start by talking to halfback Nick Farr-Jones, a player who loved the combination with his back row, about his memories from that game. Oh, Reg, it was, it was great. I mean, we had that big victory against the Welsh, as yep. you say, and I think 40-15 was the final score against England. It was a, it was a special day for me, mate. I, we, we were preparing down in Wollongong, and on the Wednesday, I, Wednesday evening, I got the phone call um, from my wife saying the waters had burst. And oh. <laughs> so I said to Bob Dwyer, <laughs> "I said to Bob Dwyer, I'm out of here. Um, I don't know when I'll be back, but, but you know my daughter Jessie, yep. and she's nearly 24, but she was born on the Thursday morning before that test, and 
I think I got back down to camp on the Friday. I think it's the only time I've, I've had alcohol the night before a test. We, we drank some champagne. Um, but it was a special day, as you say. Um, you know, you look at those tries that we scored and the execution of that. I mean, Tim Gavin was a magnificent yep. number eight. I think my biggest regret in that 91 World Cup was that we lost him a, a couple of weeks before he we went to an injury. You know, Gav is a fantastic guy. He's the president of, of uh, sorry, he was the president of, of uh, New South Wales and Waratahs Rugby. He'll become the president of Australian rugby uh, in the not-too-distant future. Magnificent guy, just a great guy to play with. But there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears in preparing and, and, and you know, off, you know, on the, tr- the training paddock to, to be able to execute the way we did on the field. And, you know, um, they work like clockwork, you know. Some of them involved Timmy Horan standing on the right side. Um, some a bit closer was just, you know, Gav, myself, Campo. Um, but, but they work like clockwork. And for the life of me, you know, I don't want to be critical of modern rugby. Um, and I know we old guys are dinosaurs, but I have no idea why people still don't train, you know, prepare, do those sort of moves, you know, create space. Um, you know, just, uh, I hardly ever see a good background move these days and it drives me to drink, Rich. Now, I'm cognizant this is a podcast and we can't really do visuals, but I'm keen for you guys to, to feel the atmosphere and, and come with this journey back to 1991 with us. I'm going to play some of the audio from this game, and we're going to start with the first try the Wallabies scored, which came uh, in the first half from uh, Wallaby scrum, feed into a scrum, five metres out from the pommy line, five metres in from touch. And you're going to hear some old familiar names here, which might jog some great memories for you too. Critical scrum this for Australia. The English will try and wheel the Australian back row into the sideline. It's up to Ewan McKenzie on the tight head side to keep this scrum straight. They're trying England, but Australia keeping it straight. Great work, the tight eight. Second shove coming. Here's Horan. And now it's Little. And it's a try to Raymond. Oh, great try there to Australia. So following uh, Marty Roebuck's try and an earlier penalty by Lionel, Australia would lead 9-0 uh, early in that half. Jeremy Guscott's got a great try for the Poms soon afterwards. Not going to go into deal with that because that's the Poms and this is green and gold rugby, not white and white rugby. Um, but not long after, Noddy Lionel would put a kick deep in goal and uh, force a 22-metre dropout uh, that Rob Andrew would line up to take. It's worth noting that Willie O taps down this kickoff to uh, Tim Gavin. A mall is formed, and, and Nick Far Jones puts uh, over a box kick. About 15 metres downfield, tap back by Offerhengarway to Gavin, who goes low Huge and sets up. Here goes Campisi. The bounce is important here. Campisi! Yes! for Campo, his second last international for Australia here at the stadium. What a kick it was from Far Jones. So it's 16-9 to the Wallabies at halftime now, and it's been a lot of the traditional backline play. That had all changed in the second half as we talk about in these, uh, these back row players come in. Let's move forward to uh, a scrum early in that second half to the Wallabies, uh, about 15 metres out or so out from the England line. Midfield scrum, uh, Far Jones to feed. You've got Liner on the left, Horan on the right with Campisi, and that's the way the ball would come. England scrum in a holding situation. 
Australia waiting to put on the second shove to present the ball. Now it's Horan and Gavin and line out, and it's Campisi. Easy as you like. Second try for Campo. Great understanding here. Australia working as we always would like them to work. Understanding, crispness of pass, change of direction, space out wide for Campisi. The audio doesn't quite do it justice, but it's a delightful try. Set up by a rock-solid scrum uh, where Lina Far Jones passes it wide to Horn. Horn's looped by Gavin, in fact, before passing it further out, and ultimately Campo scores a try in the corner. So that first example of wonderful back row play interchanging with the backs. The next try set up is pretty similar to scrum close to the England line. This time, instead of a midfield scrum, it's probably more on the on the left-hand side of the field, so probably about a 60-65 metre field on the open side. Scrum setup's exactly the same. Uh, line is on the blind. Horn is open this time. And as he may or may not pick up, this time they run the first half of the exact same move, but instead of uh, Horn, Gavin doubling around Horn, Horn pops it inside to a bullocking Willie O who charges over for a try to the Wallabies. Great to see the number 10, the 5'8", coming to support. But we've seen that uh, throughout the game, Chris. The backs acting as back rowers. Here they go again. Willie O! They won't stop him! Another variation on that back row move. And try number four to Australia. And that was it. There was one more try to Willie O, which was basically charging over from close to line. And, and that completed the uh, Australian annihilation of England uh, in that SFS test, 45 uh, to 10, which was a remarkable... 40 points to 15, sorry, which was a remarkable performance, um, England having lost also to New South Wales and Queensland. But little would we know that uh, just uh, a few months later, the two teams would be facing off again at Twickenham this time for the Rugby World Cup uh, title uh, and the winners of the Webb Ellis Trophy. I spoke to Michael Liner about um, the squad, the, how they went on from that test series and moved to the World Cup and the formation of the squad. There's a young backup, backup fly half called David Knox who never got a game uh, in that World Cup series because of Liner's selection every game and how those sorts of selections impacted the dynamics of the squad in that series. Um, I don't think it was ever really discussed with me or anything. I'm... Um, and had Moxie, you know, been selected in a game, um, fine. I think things have changed from things back then as they are now, um, where there seems to be a lot more rotation of players now. Um, that's probably due to the physical nature of, of the game now, where it's much more physical. Um, collisions are a lot stronger than they were back then, and we, um, we tended to try and play our, our, our best team for that particular game every time we took the field. And um, that's probably was the overriding my sense in terms of selection during 1991, the, you know, the best available team to beat the opposition took the field. Um, so hence, um, you know, poor old Moxie <laughs> missed <laughs> out, I guess. And, but he was Enjoy part of the, the squad and all that sort of thing. And yeah, um, and there was probably quite a few other players in that in a similar sort of um, uh, role as well, playing most games, and another's missing out. So it was just part of it, and I think that's changed a lot now, though. 
Squad selection can be consistent when the team's winning, and that's what the Wallabies were doing at that time. Following that English test, we backed it up with another win over the All Blacks in Sydney uh, the following week, followed by a tight loss in the wet of Auckland. And then it was on to the World Cup. We started with a scrappy win over the Pumas in our first game, followed by a tight uh, three-point win against Western Samoa in a wet and rugged encounter. Things started to click a bit better in the next match against the Welsh, where we flogged them once again, uh, before that famous and heart-stopping quarter-final against the Irish in Dublin. So we then produced some exceptional rugby to defeat the All Blacks in the semi-final, which saw us through to the grand final against the Poms at Twickenham, our first Rugby World Cup final. The Poms themselves had beaten the Scottish in their semi-final. Now, the Poms had played fairly predictable rugby up until this point, yet when it came to the final, whether they had been goaded into it by the media, who knows, but they came out and decided to use the ball. It caught many by surprise, and I spoke to winger Rob Edgerton about his memories of the game and these tactics. Yeah, no, it was a tough final. Uh, they... They really departed from their, their game plan. Uh, they played pretty tight against us um, in, in Sydney. And yeah, for the final, I think they decided that the only way they were going to win the game was to throw the ball around. And that's something they hadn't done really for years. And they, to, be, to be fair, they cut us open a little bit. And uh, they had some opportunities and didn't, didn't take those opportunities. And uh, we, we scrambled pretty well in defence. And... Uh, and scored the only the only try of the match. Liner was also surprised about the tactics from England, but he was adamant that the performance of the Wallabies against the All Blacks the week before, uh, a team who we all know loves to run the ball, and uh, particularly our second half performance where we held them out defensively in a superb effort, uh, really carried us in good stead for the grand final challenge that was England and their different tactics. And it did hold us in good stead for the final, where we didn't expect England to try and move the ball around like they did um, because they'd shown, given no indication prior to that that they, that's what they were going to do. They'd played a very tight forward-oriented game and to this day over here, um, there's still players within that team that haven't forgiven some of their other players for, for changing their, their tactics on that day. Um, and no matter what England sort of came to us with, whether it was a forward-dominating sort of kicking game. Um, we were ready for that and when they started to run the ball, it was a bit of a surprise, but we were ready for that as well and could cope with it. So, you know, I think the team was a very good all-round team with not a huge amount of weaknesses, but some great um, team players in there. Guys that you mentioned, like Marty Roback and um, yeah. those sort of players, um, Edgerton, Rob Edgerton, who were you know, not sort of the glamorous sort of Campisi or Horns or those sort of players, but were an integral part to actually the, the functioning of the team both on and off the field. So Lionel was sure the all-black performance had prepared them for the, uh, the World Cup final against the Poms. But how much of a factor was playing the all-blacks the week before and that awesome performance? Did it mean the Wallabies weren't quite ready for the Poms? Uh, had they played their grand final a week early, were they really queued up for a big grand final performance? I asked the question to the captain of the team, Nick Farr-Jones. Absolutely, Reg. I mean, yeah, we're, we're absolutely you know, on, on board, on, on track. I mean, it, it's hard to stay focused, particularly for the young guys, but we were, we, we knew the job in front of us at Twickenham. Um, we, we were, we, there was no complacency. We knew how hard they were going to be. 
I mean, the sad thing, you know, what is it, 20, 24 years later, um, we just didn't play that well. We, yeah. we defended bloody well, but we just, if you look at the stats, we only got about 37, 38% of possession. Um, we just didn't play well. Um, we defended wonderfully, but, but, you know, when you win the World Cup, I'm sure the Kiwis feel like this after their victory, you know, four years ago. Um, you love to, to win scoring four and five tries, you know, 50 metres out, multi-phase play, interchange between forwards and backs. We got one lousy try in that final. <laughs> a five-metre sort of rolling more from the English line, yeah. uh, from a line-out. So, so that's the only regret. But people don't really remember scores. They, they remember who won. So we opened the show with Simon Poitavan, and we're going to finish with him tonight. Poido actually retired from the Wallabies uh, at the end of the 1987 year, which is also a Rugby World Cup year, somewhat frustrated with the state of Australian rugby and perhaps the coaching at the time. Bob Dwyer, the 1991 coach, was able to convince him to come back to the Wallabies to have one last crack. So ultimately, this Rugby World Cup final would be his last test. I asked him about that experience of, of going into such a massive game for his country, but also knowing that it would also be his last ever time he'd pull on that green and gold jersey he was oh so passionate about. Uh, it was, it was um, I suppose, a significant sort of event in the, in the uh, 24 hours leading up to get, getting into London was um, ourselves and the All Blacks were meant to leave, leave at um, different times from... Dublin Airport on that Sunday and uh, for some reason the All Black plane got delayed so we walked into the terminal and to see the All Black side um, heading to Wales for the uh, third, fourth playoff um, both was quite sad because I had a lot of mates on that side and uh, you could see the disappointment in them but um, also to relief from us that we're going to London and when we landed in London I think the uh, overriding thing was people starting to realise this was this was really big uh, London's a, a great city great world city the place was uh, was really uh, pumping and you could just see there was one game in town that was a World Cup final and um, I think one of the the real sort of messages coming out of the team was, okay, we're just going to shut ourselves behind closed doors. We're not going to be out seen anywhere. We're not going to give expose ourselves to the uh, to the Fleet Street press because they'll look for a chink in the oven, look for someone to be doing some, something silly. And uh, we had a a really below the radar settled um, preparation that week. And I always remember that that night before uh, the World Cup final was probably the best night's sleep I've had in my oh, life. Probably. And I was I was um, I was rooming with Rob Edgerton, who was uh, the fantastic winger. Yeah, we um, had him on the series earlier. Right, the yeah. time, yeah. So um, myself and AJ were uh, were sharing this massive bloody uh, room in this hotel, and um, it was just uh, the most peaceful preparation. And again. Coming to the ground the next next day because you'd drive through all the you know the various picnickers around the place in the uh, in the back car park and they were giving it to us and it was just the best preparation and to say come on just keep it coming keep it coming very yeah you know, there was absolutely uh, rivers of arrogance coming through that uh, the car park <laughs> arrogance that's great <laughs> and um, again sort of leaving that uh, that dressing room. At Twickenham was such strong, uh, strong belief in in our side. It wasn't a great Test match. World Cup finals in any sport yep. often aren't, <clears throat> but I think the overriding statistic, which um, really comes to the fore, is that 
I think we had about 33% possession uh, during that test match, and it was a situation where you had a number of ten on the other side who kicked goals from virtually everywhere on the field. Uh, that any any um, situation which uh, we thought was marginal, we let the English have the ball because we had this fantastic defence, and we just built them. Yeah, and uh, that just happened the whole game. To the game itself, and as we've heard, it wasn't an amazing game. It wasn't uh, exceedingly memorable by what happened on the pitch, more so just as a result and what it meant for Australian rugby. We did score the only try of the game. Still not too sure who it was. Was it Tony Diley? Was it Ewan McKenzie? We'll hear a bit about that soon. But there is a piece of play leading up to that try, which I think is often overlooked in terms of, of significance for the match. And it was a piece of magic from Timmy Horan, who uh, he showed copious amounts of skills, all his skills in this in this play that led up to the try. So basically, England put through a chip kick, uh, attacking the line. Horan takes the catch in his own 22 and plays on from there. It was off the foot. Underwood there. Horan having to jump for it. And he's away. Horan down the wing. The cover's across. It's still dangerous though with Webb going back. And play there going right from deep in 122 to the other. Campesi with the ball, ready to take the quick throw in. Thinks better of it. Yes, wonderful bit of play from the state. The important thing is that they're prepared to counter-attack. And when the opportunity comes, no matter where it is, they like to get away with it if they can. Film Cairns, the Australian hooker with the ball, just sorting out the line-out signals. And Ophahan Gowie gathering it in two-handed. The Australians trying to roll it off the side. England in trouble here. It's a try. And is it Ophahan Gowie still holding on to it? And that'll be the only try of the game. Um, I'm still not too sure exactly who got awarded it, but it was uh, the nature of the, the type of game that it was that no one really cared. And as Nick Farr-Jones uh, said before, it doesn't matter what the score was, just that we won. So there weren't too many other highlights. There enough there, but nothing that needs to be recounted here. But let's play those last couple of seconds of the of the grand final just so we can have another great um, bask in the glory of what this World Cup winning Wallaby team was all about. Now, John Webb, is he aware how close we are to the end? Chucks it in field, but Halliday isolated. Gets past one. Gets past two. England must win the ball, though. And that's it! The final whistle blows. Australia said from day one they weren't coming here to run second. And they've taken the trophy. But a really... Magnificent challenge from England. They gave it absolutely everything. It was a fantastic win by the Wallabies, but the Poms did give their everything, and they will give their everything again in this Test Series coming up. What an epic encounter it's going to be. Chica versus Jones. Uh, World Cup retribution time. The Poms will be out to, to have a go at us. And, you know, they've got long memories, and you can hear the crowds now chanting already. This is going to be an epic encounter. We hope you enjoy the podcast. We hope you enjoy the Test Series. See you soon.